The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for episode 35 of The Murder of My Family. If you find that you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast so that the show can continue to grow and reach new listeners. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at murderofmyfam or by searching for The Murder of My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder of my family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout-outs to any new supporters. In this episode, I'd like to thank Anna Skalstad. And thank you to all of the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One last bit of housekeeping before we get started. CrimeCon is less than a month away. You've heard me talk about it and how excited I am to be going. And if you'd like to go, there's still time. You can be part of the fun by registering at CrimeCon.com today and purchasing your badges. And when you do, be sure to use my promo code CRIMINOLOGY19 to save 10%. And the next three people that use the promo code CRIMINOLOGY19 to purchase their badges will get a bag of merchandise delivered to you in person by me. It will include books, coffee mugs, stickers, and more. So if you're on the fence, I hope you'll decide to go. And if so, I'll see you there. Now that we've got all of that out of the way, let's get started with today's case. My aunt died in 1948, and it's sort of a family mystery. I remember my mom telling me the story about her Aunt Miriam, and when she was a kid, they would tell her that she slipped and hit her head in a curb. So it sounded like it was a freak accident. But then kind of years go by, and you start getting interested in your family history and researching about your family. It kept coming up. It just kept coming up, you know. She looked back and said, wait a minute, that story we were told about her slipping and hitting her head on the curb, that can't be right. There's got to be more to that. Well, my mother told me this story. I feel like it was shortly after my grandmother died and my mom collected all those records. And that was when she found the death certificate of Miriam and cause of death read homicidal assault, which is a lot different from hitting your head on the curb. 
We lived in a two-family house. Um, my parents lived downstairs, my grandparents lived upstairs, and my cousins were always around. There were six grandkids in some total. I was the baby, and I was extremely close with my grandfather. He taught me how to ride my bike, tie my shoes, bluff at poker, and bet on the horses. <laughs> he was a, quite the character. She just said that he had to identify her body, and when he came home, he was so angry. So they were not allowed to talk about it. They were not allowed to bring it up. Um, the one thing that always got me was she said my grandfather was angry at God. Just that little piece of information to me shows what a huge impact it must have had on his life. He always told you how he felt and how he saw things. So for him to not talk about this particular thing, I think, shows how upsetting it was for him. This is still a cold case. There's no resolution to it. One of the things my grandfather did say was he and his brother went to the place, mystery place, where it happened. He said it was a bar, so I assume he walked into the bar and asked, you know, what happened? Does anybody know anything? And he said no one would speak. No one would speak to him. But the one thing he did learn uh, was that his sister was gay, which in 1948 was not accepted. So that sort of changed the whole dynamic of what I was really looking at, what I was really looking into, and I wanted to know more. So I don't really know like what happened after that. It just sort of went away, um, which bothers me because she was alive. She died at 22, just at such a young age. Um, to die like that, for it to just be forgotten, is not okay with me. The more I keep digging, the more things I'm uncovering, I think that this wound up being a hate crime. But I think there's a bigger story there to tell. Um, that I think people can relate to. My name's Ann Coldridge, and I'm trying to figure out what happened to my great aunt Miriam Ryan, who was killed in 1948, and her case is still unsolved. The segment you just heard is from a documentary film that's in the works called Treat Her Kindly. And as you heard, the film examines the cold case murder of a woman named Miriam Ryan. And when I say cold case, that's an understatement. Miriam Ryan was murdered in 1948, in a time before DNA, forensic science, and the latest techniques used to catch criminals. It was also a time when certain lifestyles weren't talked about or accepted in public. And if you happened to be living one of those lifestyles and became a murder victim, your case might be essentially moved to the back burner or swept under the rug. Such is the case of Miriam Ryan. In 1948, the 22-year-old telephone operator was living secretly as a gay woman in a city where she didn't dare share her secret. That city was New York City, 
Manhattan. Can you imagine not being able to live an openly gay life in New York City of all places? What a difference 70 years makes. Sadly, Mariam didn't even share her secret with many of those closest to her. Because of the passage of time and Mariam's need to keep much of her life secret, there unfortunately aren't a lot of details available to fully lay out what's known about Mariam's final day. What we do know is that late on the night of April 1st or early on April 2nd, 1948, Mariam made her way to the Pally Bar located at 236 West 78th Street and she either was likely accompanied by a girlfriend or met one at the bar. At some point, two men came up to Miriam and the woman she was with and began to hassle them. Miriam stood up to the men and was assaulted. She wound up unconscious and bleeding. Her injuries were severe and she was taken to nearby Knickerbocker Hospital. For 15 hours, Miriam lingered with severe head wounds and finally passed away on April 2nd. Mariam's brother was contacted to identify her body, and it was devastating for him. It changed his life forever. The medical examiner's autopsy report told the story of just how severe the injuries that ended Mariam's life were. The report listed a skull fracture, lacerations of the brain, subdural hemorrhage, and cerebral compression all of which were determined to have been caused during a homicide. One curious detail that the autopsy revealed was that there was no alcohol in Miriam's system. Police had sketchy details to work with, and not a lot of people were willing to talk. There was one witness, a woman named Claire Nelson. Somehow what police did have turned out to be enough to make an arrest in Miriam's case. Only a couple weeks after Miriam's death, a 35-year-old man named Harry Plavnik was taken into custody and held without bail for Miriam's murder. It turned out that Plavnik had a criminal record for bookmaking. But somehow, during the legal process, charges were dismissed against Plavnik, and he walked free. If he had anything to do with Miriam's murder, or had more information about it, he took it to the grave with him, dying in 1968. Apparently, no other suspects were taken into custody or arrested in relation to Miriam's case. Following Miriam's death, her family tried to put the pain of losing her behind them. The details and frustration surrounding her case was apparently too much to bear. And once again, in that time and place, it was difficult to talk or know about all the details of her life and death. As the years passed, new generations of Miriam's family would occasionally ask questions about Miriam and how she died. Eventually, the version of how she died, which circulated through the family, was that she fell and hit her head. The sad reality was that Miriam was likely the victim of a hate crime, and that she was killed for being gay, and for being with another woman. Eventually, Anne Coodridge began asking more questions of her grandfather. She wanted to know more about who her great-aunt Miriam was, and how she died. Slowly, bits and pieces of the truth came out, and Anne found herself captivated by Miriam's story. What started out for Anne as wanting to know more about Miriam soon became a personal mission for her to learn the truth about her great aunt. That mission led to Anne spending countless hours digging into Miriam's life and death. At times, it's been part genealogy research, part armchair detective investigation. The journey has led Anne to work on a documentary about Miriam's sad but fascinating story, Treat Her Kindly. Over 70 years after Miriam died, 
Anne's goal isn't to see someone brought to justice for Miriam's murder, as the man or men who killed her are probably dead themselves. Instead, Anne's goal is to simply know the truth. She wants to know what happened to her great aunt Miriam in 1948. Anne joined me to discuss Miriam's case and her quest to get the truth. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. Have you ever wanted to be a fly on the wall during a murder trial? If so, I've got a podcast that should be your next binge. Murderish is a true crime podcast that gives listeners a 3D look at gripping murder cases from beginning to end. You'll get to know the victims and the perpetrators and how their worlds collided. And you'll also find out what went down during the trial. The host, Jamie, even shares her own personal experience being the jury foreman on a first-degree murder trial, as well as a terrifying personal story about the time a stranger came into her bedroom at night. You may be familiar with some of the crimes covered on Murderish, but many will be cases you've probably never heard of. Search Murderish in your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe to start binging. And remember, listening to Murderish doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murderish. Thanks so much for joining us to discuss your great aunt Miriam's murder with us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Miriam's case is certainly an old one. It's one of the oldest I've ever researched or ever covered. Was her case sort of talked about in different generations of your family when you were younger, and that's what inspired you to look into her case? Well, I think it was actually the opposite. There wasn't much talked about Miriam, and so really what started as sort of a genealogy project just kind of morphed into something much bigger. Um, I know my mother, when she was young, she was sort of told that she, she had an aunt, but she died when my mother was really young, so she didn't know my mother. Um, and the sort of story sort of was, was Miriam fell and she hit her head on the curb. Like it was some kind of weird freak accident. Um, but you know, my mother years later as an adult was in a conversation, um, with her grandmother, with her mother's mother, where Miriam is actually, uh, my grandfather's sister. So it gets a little confusing there, but, uh, she said, well, whatever happened to Miriam? Cause we weren't really allowed to talk about it growing up. And she said, well, she got into a bar fight and was hit in the head with a bottle. Like, that's a lot different from hitting your head on the curb. So, um, you know, my mother again said, well, why weren't we allowed to talk about this? And she said, well, it made your grandfather or your father, my grandfather, so angry. She said he was just angry, angry at God. He stopped going to church. Um, you know, my mother now says, I don't know why I didn't keep asking. He just sort of dropped it back then. He didn't really ask anymore. Um, and so then when my grandmother died, well, my grandfather sort of mourned in his own way, and he went through this whole thing of throwing everything out. And so my mother went over and collected all the important family records, and that's when she found Miriam's death certificate, and it said the cause of death was homicidal assault. Um, so you didn't really want to ask my grandfather much, but I kind of he started losing his memory, and I just kind of encouraged my mother. I said, if we never ask, we are never going to know anything about this. Um, so we started to ask him questions and you got really short, abrupt answers. You could just tell he didn't want to talk about it. So basically the gist of what we managed to get out of him was, um, Miriam was in a bar. She was with her girlfriend. Um, men started harassing the girlfriend. Um, Miriam tried to stick up and intervene, um, wound up getting up into the fight. Um, we don't know about the curb. We don't know about the bottle. 
that wasn't in anything he said. Um, he did have to go identify her body. Uh, he also went back to the scene of the crime. He just said the place. I had no idea where that was. Um, and he said when they, him and his brother went there, nobody would talk to them. They basically said, get out of here. Um, that was it. So I was just sort of wanted to know what else happened. And so I kind of wrote to the New York City archives and I said, well, I've got a death certificate. I've got a death certificate number. Is there anything, medical examiner records, anything? And I got a 13 page autopsy report back um, along with some other police records. And um, it actually said in there that she got into a street altercation where she fell and hit her head on the curb. So that just sort of you know, reinforced the, the family war. I, I simultaneously tried to see if there was anybody in the family left alive at still newer. And I do have an uncle on my mother's side that's the same age. He's uh, 94 years old now, lives in Arizona. I wrote to him and he, uh, he said he knew Miriam when they were, they were young at 15. She was, you know, typical New York City. She played stickball, stoopball with uh, joined right in with his friends. They took turns washing dishes, uh, dinner dishes. And he said, you know, nobody knew she was gay until she died, but that the death affected everyone. He also said that her friends came to Miriam's wake and cried over a body. It was really emotional. And he said, you know, good luck with my project and to sort of treat her kindly. So I've been filming this now as a documentary and it, call treat her kindly because uh, I just thought it was sort of appropriate based on uh, what we're finding out about her death. So this really turned in this family tragedy that you began investigating really turned into a, a big project for you. It did. It did. Um, I just, you know, I know it's so old, the likelihood of following it is, is not realistic and that's really not why I'm doing it. It's just because I don't think uh, anybody should be beaten to death the way Miriam was and, and just sort of be forgotten, like, you know, just lost to history. Uh, one of the places I actually went first was in Brooklyn is there's the lesbian, her story archives. And I just went there to get some direction and guidance. I, you know, what was contained in the archives? Is there anything relevant to the 1940s um, and, and being a gay woman in the 1940s. Um, and I made some good connections there, but the one thing they said to me was, you know, this is very important. Do you know, realize how important this is? And I, it's important to me, it's my family, but you know, they said, Miriam's probably one of many that this happened to back in the day. So it, it's, it's interesting to learn about her story. Um, and I've sort of made great connections with this along the way. So I feel like in some ways the connection I'm making, is bringing Miriam to life, or at least to people's memories. Yeah, and, and you mentioned bringing her to life. Obviously, she died in 1948. You didn't You didn't get to meet her. Um, no. It sounds as if you were able to get to know her a little bit from learning about her life. What are some of the things mm -hmm. that you learned through your research about what kind of person she was? Sure. Well, she was 22 years old when she died, right? Um, she was a telephone operator in New York City. She lived in Washington Heights. Uh, some of the police uh, records talk about, you know, the scene of the crime was down on um, the Upper West Side, West 78th Street. Um, so we're curious as to why, you know, she was down there. Um, but my family, they were, she was the youngest um, 
of my grandfather's siblings. There was five. You know, they were a typical Depression-era family. They didn't have a lot uh, growing up, but, you know, they were hard workers. And uh, Miriam's parents were both gone by the time she was a teenager. There's kind of pieces in there that I can um, see, like a 1940 census. That's when she was living um, with my grandfather and my grandmother and uh, the great-uncle that that of mine that knew her around the age of 15 were living together, but then it's lost because there's no other census records um, after 1940. But I did manage to get her social security um, application in 1942. So that's sort of the last address I can place her at. How hard was it getting some of that stuff to, to try and build this, <laughs> uh, put this puzzle together? I probably spent hundreds of hours just researching. I've done a lot of um, Freedom of Information Act. Um, I've kind of put things together, just sort of who she was. Then there's sort of the crime stuff with the autopsy report. And, um, you know, I you can glean from that what happened to her. I wish I had sort of, a, you know, someone with a more professional knowledge on that to actually explain the you know, the scientific terms within the autopsy report. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. She was beaten to death by two unknown white men. Um, but it would just be nice to sort of have just, you know, again, the more professional opinion on what happened there. Um, I've also tried to just sort of place her in history, and I've learned a lot of great things about, you know, what it was like to be a lesbian woman uh, post-World War II. Um, and it, ironically, is some great information out there um, from someone named Hugh Ryan, no relation to the Miriam Ryan and the Ryan family. Um, and he, I interviewed him in my documentary, and he said, you know, this was one of the most dangerous times um, for a gay person was post-World War II. And, you know, during World War II, um, you know, we were exposed to these different lifestyles um, because it was more accepted in Europe. And, there, you know, there was a lot of troops in Europe and, and exposure to that culture. When the war ended, there was sort of this clampdown. The men all came back. The men took the jobs from the women. And there was sort of this clampdown on any alternative, what we would, you know, call an alternative lifestyle. So it's a good way to kind of place her in time. Yeah. And they were all about the uh, the family traditional values and stuff, right. and reestablishing right. uh, that. So that was probably not the the time where somebody that had uh, to hide that lifestyle or felt they had to hide that lifestyle would want to, you know, put that out in right. the open. It, if you look back at it, it, it seems like if her death was the result of her uh, being gay. It, that would be a hate crime, and exactly, it's, exactly. It, 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 it we see that sometimes now, although the world seems to be more embracing of of it than they were in 1948. But we still see a lot of that. What were some of the challenges you think she faced um, from from your research of living uh, and having to hide that part of her life back then? Yeah, I, you know, I can't even imagine not being, you know, who you are. Um, you know, we didn't grow up in that reality, but uh, I, I would assume, you know, she hid it. Um, you know, obviously nobody in our family knew anything about it until after she died. But, you know, maybe, you know, kind of going back to that crime and why was she at this bar? Um, her body was picked up at 4.55 a.m. The autopsy report said there was no alcohol in her system. So, you know, what were you doing in that bar? Um, again, another thing, um, 
gay and lesbians, where do, where did you find your tribe back then? You know, things I've learned is, you know, a lot of these bars and nightclubs, um, that had that clientele were owned by the mob. Um, I did find a newspaper article that said one person was actually indicted, uh, with her crime, uh, with her, uh, murder rather, um, by a man named Harry Plavnik. And it said he was a convicted bookmaker. Um, he was held without bail. There were a series of, um, hearings, I assume, from the records I can find in the archives, um, but eventually the case is dismissed about a year and a half later and the records were sealed. Um, so I'm struggling there to kind of find out why. And again, knowing the police report said there were two people involved with their death, um, this is just one. Um, I'd love to know. It also says there's a witness. Her name's Claire Nelson. You know, is that her girlfriend? Maybe if she's corroborating the story. Um, of getting into the fight outside and falling and hit her head on the curb. So I, maybe it was manslaughter. Maybe they just meant to beat her and we're going to leave her. There's so many variables. Um, you know, we're just kind of trying to find anything we can to substantiate you know, what happened back then. Um, could have been a lady, Claire Nelson, walking her dog at 4.55 a.m. for all we know. Um, but I've gone back to the place. It's a comedy club now on the Upper West Side pretty amazing standing there sort of picturing in my mind what happened where she was left in the street pretty emotional there's so many layers to it that's what i thought was so interesting about her story because uh you've got all these different scenarios and uh you know even within your family you initially think that it's one thing that uh surrounded her death and then you come to find out it's it's something uh more sinister than that right so let's talk a little bit about, if you can, the the person mm -hmm. that was arrested. Because when I was reading and researching uh, through some of the stuff you sent me, I did see that there was that suspect arrested. But it, it, mm -hmm. you just mentioned he sort of was released without any uh, explanation, and and the and the record sealed. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that situation and how that came to be. Sure. So I really, you know, the internet's a wonderful thing, although sometimes you have to pay for these websites, but I did um, find a, you know, April 14th, 1948 daily news article. Um, you know, it just puts it out there. Harry Plavnik, 35, his address in the Bronx, he was convicted bookmaker. Um, it, you know, says in the death, April 2nd death of a girl, uh, of a fight in a Midtown bar, uh, Miriam Ryan, it gives her address. It, all, it just substantiates the things we found. But I have the name of the bar, the Pally Bar. Um, nobody seems to know, or at least in the circles I'm, I'm researching and wh what that was or, you know, what we know about it. I still have some work to do in terms of, like, going back to the tax assessment records and, and finding who owned that place. Um, but I did find a DA record at the archives um, for Harry. And then, you know, May 2nd, he was arrested. May 3rd, he was out on bail. And then it looks like there were a series of hearings over the course of the next year and a half. And the way I found out um, the records was dismissed and sealed was I used my rights under FOIL um, to request the records on the, the trial. The one thing I left out at the beginning that my grandfather said, because well, we said, we did ask him, well, was anybody ever convicted of a crime? And he said, no, it was a cop or a cop's son. I have no idea how he 
why he thinks that. Like, I, I, I don't know, but I, I kind of want to believe him. You know, something made him think that. Um, and again, it could have been, you know, was this convicted bookmaker? Was was the the bar mobbed up? Were they paying off the cop? You know, the, a lot of times the cops were paid to go away. You know, they had a gay clientele. I have no, you know, again, no idea, but they're just sort of some leads that I keep researching. Have you been able to find out anything else, like, specifically about the this man that was arrested? Anything in his life about what he uh, did? Uh, no, I did an FBI uh, foil to see if maybe there was something there, um, and I did not. But that's, you know, something, I, again, I could probably use... Um, a, a little push or, or some piece of knowledge of how I would go about finding like somebody's rap sheet um, back then because he was convicted of being a bookmaker. So he's got something back there. Yeah. And, and a lot of times I know back then, especially compared to today, now you just save everything digitally and it's there forever back then, right. you know, they file these things in, in a shoebox, and then at some point they just probably discard them. Um, so it makes you wonder what was saved over the years uh, for him to see if he had any other records or, or anything interesting in his background. Right. And that kind of also makes me think about Miriam. So like her clothes were bagged and tagged and um, put away. And I, I requested a, uh, from the New York City Police Department um, any information on her, including any evidence, and uh, was told that anything from that time would have been boxed up and put out into um, the warehouses in Brooklyn that were um, unfortunately hit by Hurricane Sandy. So there's probably stuff there that's also been lost. And so you're getting all kinds of obstacles in your way of of finding out (laughs) more more about this, unfortunately. You mentioned that the the record was sealed on, on this arrest have you done any yeah. research to see how, when, and why records were sealed like that? Is there anything peculiar about that, or is that something that was pretty standard? Um, I, I don't really have an answer for that. Um, I, I think it is kind of peculiar. And I, I get the fact that, you know, you, you know, you want to protect the innocent, and maybe he was charged with a pretty heinous crime that, you know, he was completely innocent, and so it's, you know, sealed to protect him. Um that's really, you know, all, all I know. Wow. And, you know, we throw the term cold case around quite a bit, but mm-hmm. Miriam's case is, you know, seven years old. <laughs> so that really is as cold, freezing, a, case, right? <laughs> as cold a case as, as you can get. I'm, I'm curious, where does it stand today? Do police, you know, we hear that police never close an open murder investigation. Right. Is it open technically? It is technically still open, um, you know, is everybody probably dead and gone that was involved in this, most likely, although I've got a 94-year-old uncle that's still alive. So, you know, even if it was just, you know, what am I looking for at the end of the day, you know, is this going to be solved? Most likely not, and, and I don't think I'm, I'm really, you know, it's not about revenge or, or, or anything like that. For me, it's just about um, sort of really just finding, discovering the truth and what happened to her. So, you know, somebody's out there that knew her story or one of her friends, you know, had family members. They kind of told this tragic story, too. Yeah, that that would be great. 
Um, but sort of until then, I think I'm just going to continue finding, you know, anything I can because it just seems like as, as one thing turns up, it kind of puts me down another path to, to research information about. So like wheeling an old, you know, an elderly uh, <laughs> uh, person in the court to face charges isn't what you're really looking for. You're looking, you're <laughs> yeah, looking for the no. truth to, to what happened. Right. You know, um, you know, whoever did this to her, you know, they've had, they've had to live with that in my mind. So, um, yeah, this is more about the truth and remembering Miriam and someday, someday when I have, you know, grandkids, they'll, they'll, they'll also remember Miriam. And it's, it's an important story because, you know, through history, um, when you have these kind of crimes against people for whether it's race or sexuality or, or anything like that. They're, they're milestone cases. Um, right. and, and this seems like a clear cut case of whatever happened, whether it was accidentally or on purpose, it seemed like it was right. born out of her choice, you know, to be with who she was with. And, and that right. boils down to, you know, a hate crime or something bordering on a hate crime, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So you've gone. It sounds like you started this initially with more of a genealogy project. Has it shifted more, would you say, to an armchair detective project where you're having to, <laughs> to sort of it's, hunt for clues on your own? It it, it really has. Um, you know, like, it, you know, it's all that typical, you know, all right, what does her autopsy say? You know, what time of day did this occur? You know, where where was the scene of the crime? You know, who owned that bar? Like, you know, who are the suspects? It definitely has, um, and also kind of peppered with, um, you know, history and like historical context, and and that's been um, that's been really interesting to me too. Um, so it's not one or the other; it's a combination. You don't want to just find out uh, about, you know, who killed her. You want to know more about the your history of your family and and her part of it. Uh, so, but you also do want to know who murdered her. So it's sort of a combination of, of everything that you're you're trying to to look for. Right, right. Yeah. It's like a good murder mystery book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and with with seventy year old uh, plot line, it's um, <laughs> right. probably not the easiest one looking for clues. Um, how did this morph uh, into a a documentary? Where where did that come from? What got you interested in in doing that? Well, I think, you know, first, I'm a big fan of the documentary films, so I've, I've watched um, many of them, uh, you know, all shapes and sizes. I just like a good documentary. But I think to what you said earlier about this sort of being a hate crime and coupled with the fact that, you know, if I hadn't done this, you know, we would really lose Miriam's memory to time. So I just thought it was also a good way to sort of capture, you know, her, the things we found out about her, and like I said, you know, generations to come, it'll at least be, if anything, at least a, a record in our family um, of, of Miriam's story and, and what we found. And do you have a background in, in documentaries, or is it sort of you're just dive, diving I, I, in? I'm <laughs> just diving in. Yeah, I'm just diving in. Um, I've got a good friend that um, is helping me with this project, and yeah, it's been it's been great. You know, I've, I'm juggling you know being a mom and full time job and this. <laughs> and what are your hopes for the documentary? Do you, I mean, is it something that you'd like to do mainly for your family, or is this something you'd like to to go out 
to to people all over so they can see the kind of things that happened back then? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, no. Once we complete it, I mean, we would definitely love to put it out there for people to see. Um, I think there's just a lot of things that are relatable, you know, um, sort of, you know, being gay and the hate crime aspect. I mean, that's those are still relevant topics today. I think it's just a fascinating take because of when it occurred and the time it occurred. Um, so, so there's you know, a lot of interesting, different, you know, similarities, yet, you know, the time period of, of of when it occurred. Um, so I, th- I think that people have, you know, things in their family histories. Maybe they didn't talk about as well. Maybe it's not, you know, a murder, but there's some other secret or some other, um, you know, tragedy that occurred. So if, if that's relatable to somebody else and they want to explore, this inspires them to explore their own family um, secrets or histories, mysteries, whatever you want to call it, you know, that's fine by me. You know, maybe the, the steps I've taken, somebody else can, you know, use the steps and the places I've done research or, you know, I'm, I'm always happy to share. Are, are you almost done with the project or do you still have a, a pretty good ways to go with it? Uh, I still think we've got a pretty good ways to go. I feel like it's it's picked up a lot more steam. We've got a lot more um, when I first started. So um, it's just sort of tying it all together and, and really I do struggle with, you know, what's going to be the end, you know, how, how long am I going to keep going down this, this rabbit hole and, and what'll be the end, but it, we're not near the end yet that much. I do know. And, and we talked a little bit uh, earlier before we started recording this, but I know there were certain things, certain aspects of her case and, and maybe the documentary too, uh, that you felt you might need some help with or some advice with, um, and for anybody that might be out there listening that might say, Hey, I want to see if I can help in Miriam's case some way. What, what kind of things are you still looking for? Is there certain things that people can do to help, uh, with yeah. her case? Yeah, that would be great. So, uh, like I said, the autopsy report, it's 13 pages and, you know, it's a lot of medical language. Um, so just sort of putting it in, in more layman's terms would be helpful, but it would, really be helpful too. I think I visualize like a, you know, the charts you see with the, you know, the body outline and where the, where the wounds were. I think that would really give me some perspective because I am surmising and I can be completely wrong that maybe somebody was holding her hands. You know, there's two people involved. Um, but, but it would just be nice to sort of, you know, corroborate what my thoughts are based based on the language in the autopsy report. There's also that aspect of my grandfather saying for some reason he thought a cop or a cop's son. Well, there's mention in some of the police documents about the raided premises squad, um, you know, which I think is probably the morality police of the day. And I can find information that goes back about, you know, during the Stonewall days in the 70s and the Stonewall riots. But I really can't find, and I've tried, I've written to John Jay College and the archivist there um, about the raided premises squad in the 1940s and what exactly they were responsible um, for. Um, And then anywhere I can maybe get uh, Harry Plavnik's rap sheet to see what he was all about uh, and learn more about him. But anybody can um, contact us. We've got a Facebook page called Treat Her Kindly. They can message us through that. And hopefully if anybody out there listening has uh, that knowledge or that skill set to, to help you wade through some of those those waters, they can reach out to you and, and offer their, their assistance for you. Yeah, absolutely. We'd definitely appreciate it. 
And and one thing I wanted to circle back to because you just mentioned it there there was mention of a second person possibly being involved and you don't know if that's mm-hmm. a police officer or, or there's a possibility. Is there any details about that second person description? Uh, anything at all to go on with him? Absolutely nothing. It just says she was engaged in a street altercation with two unknown white males. That's oh. all I have. Yeah. <laughs> Out of everything that you have gathered together so far, what do you think uh, some of the the best information you have, the the most constructive stuff that you've gotten that has helped you the most? What would you say that is? Um, It's really this one uh, letter from, it's the police department. It's from the desk officer at the 20th precinct to the chief medical examiner. And it, it just basically lists, you know, 6.30 a.m., um, a police reported that Miriam was taken to the Knickerbocker Hospital. Um, it gave her address, all these things I didn't know. Um, it said, you know, that she was in the altercation with two unknown white men. The address where it occurred on 78th Street um, gave me the witness name, and there was just so much in this one piece of paper um, that we absolutely had no idea uh, when we first started. So that one uh, page uh, gave you a lot to to start off go with, on. to go on. Yeah, yeah. Um, but hopefully, if you keep digging, something else you'll you'll unearth something else that helps you and and gives you more information too. It's it's such a fascinating case when you look at it, just from a historic standpoint with the things people back then and and nowadays too to a certain extent. But back then, to to where they had to hide who they were. You know, it's mm-hmm. 70 years ago in our, in our in our history, it doesn't seem like all that long ago but that things were so different. Um, right. I know the very first episode I did on this podcast was the case of Kathy Thomas, who was murdered in, in the 1980s. Um, and she was a model citizen. She was fresh out of the Navy. But she, too, um, she was a lesbian. And at the time, she had to hide who she was or she could have you know, been arrested and kicked out of the Navy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was only, you know, a little bit less than 40 years after uh, Miriam was killed. So right, even, right. even 40 years later, we really hadn't come, you know, that far. Right. And and hopefully things now are starting to uh, fade away uh, as far as that kind of stuff goes. Have you had any groups offer to help you? Maybe someone from the uh, lesbian or gay community reach out to try and help you with this? I have. So when I said earlier I had started off in in Brooklyn at the Lesbian Her Story Archives, the archivist there put me in contact with a woman by the name of Lisa Davis. And she's um, an author, um, gay rights activist, um, part of the Stonewall Riot. She is... you know, that whole movement, that generation. Um, and she's really the one that sort of, you know, encouraged me to keep moving forward with this and that you know, it was really important to tell this story. It's probably one of many, many that will never, you know, stories that won't be told. Um, and she's connected me with, you know, this Hugh Ryan and this Philip Crawford, both of um, our uh, sort of authors and also you know, researchers of LGBTQ history. Um, so it, it, 
each person sort of connects me to someone else, you know, tells me, you know, go to this archive or I know this person there. So it, it's been very beneficial though. Isn't it? It isn't like one group of people. Um, I just keep growing networks on people willing to help me. And, and that's been great. That's awesome. And again, hopefully someone yeah. after listening can reach out to you through the Facebook page and say, Hey, I can help you with this or that. Maybe there's some people that can, help you get you further along in, in your uh, investigation here. Yeah, that'd be great. And what, one more time, what was the Facebook page? Um, it's called Treat Her Kindly. And are you on social media? Are you on Twitter at all? Um, we're not on Twitter. Okay. Um, but well, we do have a website, treaterkindly.com. So. Okay. So if they can reach you through uh, Facebook or through treaterkindly.com. Correct. Okay, and we'll put those in the notes so people can easily find find the Facebook page or or the website. Um, such Thanks. such a fascinating case, and I I definitely appreciate you sharing uh, your investigation into it and letting us know a little bit about Miriam and what she went through, unfortunately. And I hope that somehow you, for your, your sake and your family's sake, will get some kind of answers one day. Thanks so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Uh, it's it's my pleasure, and we can get the word about Miriam's case out there. It's very important, and um, I think people can appreciate it in this present time where things are still a struggle. I think um, this is an important case and, and one we should talk about. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. Today's guest, Ann Coodridge, could really use some help in connecting the dots in Miriam's murder. One of the specific challenges she's facing is clarity regarding some of the medical and autopsy findings. Additionally, identifying the witness to Miriam's murder, Claire Nelson, might be of help. If you have any experience or information that might help Ann out, or if you just want to learn more about Miriam's case, I'd encourage you to visit the website treatherkindly.com or the Treat Her Kindly Facebook page. If you enjoyed this episode, please introduce a friend to the podcast and invite them to listen. And before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody.